This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. 653. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's uh, great to be with you and thank you for subscribing. If you're new, I hope you are here to hear a voice of moderation, a voice of modernity. One of the voices uh, in the Muslim community that I think you'll begin to find some patriotism, some sense of responsibility, a sense of contrition, a sense of belief that we have Muslim problems that need Muslim solutions. There's a lot to talk to you about this week. And um, I promise we're not going to spend the uh, entire episode uh, talking about all of the noise from the uh, anti-Islam crowd, uh, but uh, a few closing topics, a few closing uh, comments to make about that uh, before we get to more important subjects and not allow the distractors to keep us away from solutions, the pessimists to keep us away from hope, the terminal dead-enders, as I would call them, to keep us away from beginning to build movements of success. Yeah, we have a large hill to climb. You know, I want to thank Glenn Beck for having me on this week. We were able to sort of dissect some of uh, the apoplexy that came out of the uh, noise chambers of Pamela Geller and Robert Spencer after last week's episode on the Alt-Jihad. Now, Before we get to that today, I'm going to talk to you a little about the 6th anniversary of the Syrian Revolution. I also want to spend some time, most of the episode, beginning a conversation. This might take a few episodes, but I think one of the core topics in in discussion of reform is what is the individual mindset, the community mindset, that are blocking and obstacles to reform within Muslim communities, ethnic, Arabic, Indian, Pakistani communities around the world and even in America. What, In order for religious theological reform to happen, there are many steps before that need to happen that include general senses of morality, tri- tri- uh, tribalism, 
meritocracy issues, critical thinking issues. I want to talk about that because I think that anyone who's, who's looking for that solution of reform, I can tell you in the work that we are doing, you can't get to a place of critically reinterpreting Quranic passages that Bin Laden or Olaki or others interpret without getting youth and young adults empowered to question the old establishment of the Islamists. So we'll get to those things uh, for the meat of the program. But first, let's do an epilogue on uh, last week's apoplexy. Um, again, um, I simply decided to respond to months of uh, abuse and criticism uh, that our Muslim reform movement was fantasy Islam, that it was lying and deceptive and illusional, that somehow we were doing this in order to simply get money, which is absolutely absurd. People can look at the budgets of the organizations that are doing this work and compare it to what we're fighting in the Islamist petro-Islamic establishment, and it is absurd. So, despite their attacks on our character, despite the fact that uh, we've been sustaining this, and then I did respond in 2011 with a long piece in The American Thinker about how Pamela Geller and Robert Spencer have common cause with the Islamists, and then one by one in detail, I discussed the deception and fabrications made up by Geller especially, but also Robert Spencer about uh, some of the work that we've done. And then we've left them alone, and we saw now Stephen Kirby and others beginning to pile on. And then we've seen, especially in the last month or two, a spike, especially in reference to criticism of Sebastian Gorka, where you saw John Guandolo writing that he was unfit for duty. Why? Because he listened to the utter nonsense of Zudi Jasser and others about the possibility of reform and the need to support reformers. And so that needed a response. At some point, we were going to respond. I had to respond and never called them liars. I never impugned their character. When we say alt-jihad, we are talking alt-movements are extreme movements. And they basically are extreme. And by being extreme and authoritarian in their messaging they end up helping the opposite cause. That's what al-Jihad means. It's an extreme black and white authoritarian message that ends up helping the jihadists. And the bizarre thing is that the they claim that it was grotesque for me to call them jihadists. They claim in that uh, Spencer says this echoes the Obama nonsense about how we can't call the Islamic Jihad Islamic Jihad because doing so will validate and empower the jihadists. And then he goes on. Yes, it is. And I said that in my pieces and in my podcast that basically it does empower the jihadists. And it is the same as Obama by saying there is one Islam. The traditional Islamist apologists marginalized us as Uncle Tom's. The alt-jihadists marginalize us as apostates in their proxy takfirism, in their takfirism by proxy, by saying that we are not Muslims and they are no different than, than the clerics. 
Obviously, they aren't the jihadists. That's the traditional jihad. That is the threat to the world. But to think that these folks are helping the United States mission, giving us solutions by saying Islam is black and white. And as I said, thanks to the time with Glenn this week, we just need some oxygen. We need, give us that small corner of the room in Islam within the house of Islam to operate and say, no, we don't, (laughs) listen, if this is, you know, at least say it's possible or maybe, but that's never given. And if you look at the method of argumentation, Spencer in his response on the title said, I endorsed a pro-Sharia Islamic supremacist and that I said no greater jihadist than the foes of jihad terror. I said no greater jihadist in this land of freedom because the Islamists are Islamists. They can be exposed quickly by their ideology. But the suppression of the solution, which is reform, reformers, is most effectively done by those swimming in the pool that recognizes that political Islam and jihad is the problem. So they believe, and then Geller titles her piece, that I am the grand mufti of the stealth jihad. So how does it make sense for them to call me a stealth jihadist, which means I'm lying and doing taqiyya as a jihadist, but somehow to them it's grotesque that I say that alt, which means an extreme movement that does the opposite thing, ends up helping the jihad. We can counter these arguments, but at the end of the day, we are pushing solutions. And in the end, I think the, the worst part of the intellectual incoherence and dishonesty of their arguments is that they will find little pieces here or there to divert the diversionary tech techniques. It's not an argument on positions. They don't take the Arabic translations I provide in my book. They haven't looked at the body of our work to deconstruct it in an intellectual way. But they simply say this, this scholar says, awliyat means this word, which means friend. So therefore, Zudi's discussion of awliyat, which he believes means legal sponsor, which is wali, which is what that means in the Arabic script. So therefore, where it says, do not take Jews and Christians as friends, it actually means legal sponsor in Islamic legal issues. That is not argued, where the Arabic they argue is a different Arabic. No, they simply then call me, in a pejorative way, the stealth jihadist and use a channeling of other scholars without any understanding of the Arabic root. I'm not saying that non-Arabs cannot read the Arabic, but at least give me a definition of the Arabic word, of what you're talking about. When they were grand uh, uh, Mufti of Al-Azhar says that what he means friend, what is he talking about? What's the example of the word he's using? This is an intellectual exercise, an academic one with linguistics involved. So if you're going to dismiss us as being uninformed, then do it intellectually, not as in a corrupt, dismissive, deceptive way, in an authoritarian way. And that's why it's the alt-jihad. It's authoritarian in a sense in dismissing true reformers as not even having any hope or having any oxygen. Look at the debates online. It's all out there. I think it's good. I think all movements benefit from transparency from exercises that air conflict. Yes, we might have common enemies, but we certainly have very different approaches. 
And I don't expect anyone to believe that reform is a definite possibility or even likely, but at least it's a possibility, or it could or may happen, or we would be better off if it did. I don't believe anyone to trust our versions of the Prophet Muhammad's story, but at least don't make it black and white that his character is 100% irredeemable, that reformers are lying. We need the room to operate, and I believe we'll take all the criticisms from the anti-jihad community, but at least offer us the respect of academic engagement rather than dismissal as liars or stealth jihadists or as Spencer ends, and he says that it's no wonder that Zudi Jasser with his Blaze program and his CPAC speech and his Fox appearances and the uncritical adulation of so very many non-Muslims on the right is feeling insecure and threatened. His position is incoherent, and somewhere in his heart of hearts, even he knows it. Oh, so now I know I'm incoherent. And, not, and so not content with all the fame and fawning and financial advantages. <laughs> that, that's just laughable if not horrifically dishonest he lashes out against the few remaining people who dare to challenge him on the facts desperate to destroy us he is in this doomed to fail as spectacularly as he has in trying to reform islam because there is just one weapon we have that he does not the truth boy with venom like that, why do I need care? Why do we need the Muslim Brotherhood? And and what these what these agitators forget is that we've taken in months of their posting of our fantasy Islam, of our Muslim reform movement failures, etc. A movement that just now started is over a year old. They claim Geller claims that we have no following, and yet now we have a movement signed by fifteen leaders. What is that? Who are those organizations? Who follows us on social media? They claim it's mostly non-Muslims. Have they followed us on social media? Have they looked at what we're doing and writing and who our following is? Yes, a lot of our followers are non-Muslim. It's a hard road to, uh, to hoe to get Muslims to begin to speak up, but to say that they're not following us is just dismissive dishonesty. Yes, we're a minority. Yes, it's a nascent leadership movement. And we're fighting an establishment that is rooted in tribalism. But to say what they've said is just abhorrent. And I think we've done a service to the conservative movement and to America that you'll see forever etched. My legacy, I hope, one of those things that I'm doing is that this exposes the type of discourse that happens from those who are authoritarian in their mindset. Yes, they might be patriots and love this country. But their approach on this issue to Islam is black and white and leaves no room for any free thinking for Muslims, for any positive solutions for Muslims. And that means that being Muslim is a suffocating exercise in authoritarianism that they want to push by proxy upon us. in an opposite kind of way, almost in the alt-jihad. When we come back, let's talk about the anniversary of the Syrian revolution, the sixth one and what's happening, and then get into the deeper personal struggles for reformers and where it truly starts in the issues of reform. 
This is Zudi Jasser on the Reform This podcast on Blaze Radio. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for sticking with me, and uh, I hope uh, we can uh, move on. There's a lot to talk about. This week was the sixth anniversary of the revolution in Syria. Revolution that started out with hope, that started off as the YouTube revolution, and now six years in, our families, and I have family, close family in Aleppo, in Damascus, mostly in Aleppo, that have just seen our horrific degradation of life, of civility, of blood and war, bloodshed and war, and anarchy now. A war that started with a hope of an end of one of the most militant, vicious regimes on the planet, of Hafiz and then Bashar Assad, and now has degenerated even further to being a regional war where the Russian pilots and Russian thugs, along with the terrorists of Iran, the Iranian Republican Guard and Hezbollah, to the tune of twenty to 40,000, are now also joined in regionally, trying to destroy not only terror groups, which is actually not their primary target, but the Sunni population of Syria. And the Sunnis have been radicalized. And the Sunnis have been joined by jihadists from all over the planet, including Afghanistan and Pakistan and the Gulf, and fueled by billions from our so-called allies, Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. So this civil war has seen the loss of almost half a million lives, 10 to 12 million displaced out of a population of 21 million. And it's horrific. I applaud the senators, Rubio, McCain, Graham, Cain, and both parties who signed a heartwarming, heart-wrenching resolution this week about the sixth year of the anniversary with the courage to call out the Russians and the Iranians and other bad actors in the region that have caused this conflict to rage on. But most notably is the Assad regime. ISIS could have been wiped out very quickly, but Assad used them as a foil in which to try to destroy a revolution that sought to defeat his tyranny. And now there's very little hope for any loss of tyranny. Both sides of that same jihadist coin in Syria, one being the Sunni jihadists of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Jabhat al-Nusra, 
and the Shia jihadists of Assad, Iran, and their Russian props. There's very little left to hope for in Syria, but on this sixth revolution, sixth anniversary of the revolution, we only can pray. I think if you look at the West, many iterations of revolutions, millions died in religious wars, and ultimately, human nature gave way to wanting to be free, gave way to a population that developed the ideas of not only enlightenment, but reformation and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Can the Arab world do that? Will the House of Islam give them room to do that? If you're a betting person, the answer to that is no. The odds are against them. I wouldn't put out good odds for that. But if you believe in human nature, if you believe that every human being on this earth was created by God, the one God, then I believe that every human being wants to be free. In our reform movement, we don't believe that Islam has a monopoly on heaven or that pathway to heaven, but that many faiths may find common pathways to that one God. And even goodness from a human being perspective, humanism can be human and not necessarily for those who don't believe in God, not also be present in their goodness as human beings. Which is the secular humanism that I talked about in the books that impacted me last week. And we'll talk more. We've talked in many podcasts about that. But I do think on this anniversary, it is important to do more than simply write resolutions. We need to do more than simply hold our hands and wring our hands at the humanitarian disaster. We now heard there's troops going into Raqqa that are American troops, a few hundred, we don't know how many. How are they fighting to kill ISIS? Are they shoulder to shoulder with Hezbollah, with the Iranian guard, with Russian thugs and Putinist criminals? I hope not. I know not as a former naval officer. There is more. There is no more moral fighting force on the planet than the U.S. military. But that means they'll have to find their own way to defeat ISIS, to never trust a single Iranian soldier, to never trust a single Russian soldier, and definitely never trust a single Assadist soldier, soldier as they go in to destroy ISIS. I wish I prayed that they also destroy the Assadists, I realize that will cause more chaos, but we need to look at solutions. And on this sixth anniversary, I'll tell you the message I've said before. I think you can never, we will never see ISIS disappear. We might disappear in three to six months, but then come back with another form of jihadist group. Another form of militant jihadist group. And we will never see that cycle of whack-a-mole go away until the dictators of the Middle East see their days numbered and begin to vanish. Because dictatorships, tyrannies, military tyrannies, fuel themselves by fueling radical Islam. We see it with the Saudis, with the Qataris, with the Egyptian military, on and on. Tunisia is the first country in the Middle East to actually now break that cycle democratically and politically rather than militarily. Egypt almost did, but then went back and reverted back to the military coup cycle.
So on this sixth anniversary, we pray for the Syrians. I pray for my family. I ask for your prayers. God bless them. May this revolution end with the defeat of ISIS and all radical Islamist groups, including the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria. And may the Assadists also equally see their demise and defeat of the Ba'athist military in Syria and the rise of a third way of liberty in Syria. Now, I've talked before to you about Locke, about Jefferson, about what is some of the movements that I like to see happen. We talked about Locke being the father of liberalism and how those ideas, if somehow translated into a Muslim mindset and consciousness, could possibly bring about the beginning of the death of Islamism or political Islam. What is the human nature that needs to be growing in order for those ideas to begin to happen, to begin to thrive, the diversity of those positions of liberal ideologies to begin? There's three areas I want to talk about. One is sort of the the tribalism, elitism, the top-down paternalism that exists that prevents individual rights. Second is the need for critical thinking and all that follows with that. Third is this concept that Islam is a way of life. How Do we maintain morality in our lives, but yet separate Islam from the governmental and political domain? Those three areas, the defeat of tribalism, the engagement and thriving of critical thinking, and third, what's the role of Islam for Muslims in their way of life? When we come back, I'd like to go down those three areas and begin to look at why until Muslims address those more general areas of our lives, we will never see reform in Islam. This is Zudi Jasser. We'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka. Why are people sneaking in containers full of Little House on the Prairie? There must be some kind of hidden message in there. We need to dig deeper. We need to find out that maybe if you play Little House on the Prairie backwards, something really bizarre happens. Where is the market? Is there some sort of sneaky video crack from Little House on the Prairie? Any of you millennials want to tell me? Pure Opelka on the Blaze Radio Network. Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This week, the primary thing I wanted to talk to you about is before we get to the ideologies, I've spent a lot of time in previous episodes on theological arguments, political movements, what are some of the, the root thinkers in history that we could begin to emulate I think today, and even continuing the next few episodes, there are some areas that really need to be addressed first personally. And I would ask, 
if you're Muslim, if you're not Muslim, get your Muslim friends to think about this. Because until we think about these three areas, we are not going to see reform. Because as it says in the Quran, God will not change the condition of those people until they choose to change their own condition. What is that own condition? I believe that that condition that needs to be changed is not only complacency, is not only a, a sense of denial, as I've said before on this program, a 12-step program that we need. Beyond that, there are some core manifestations of the diminishment of human nature, of diminishment of individuality that is part of our culture, that is part of who we are as Muslims, as Arabs, whatever that identity is that suffocates our individual freedom to think outside the box, we need to reform. And those three areas I mentioned are first, tribalism, second, how to critically think, and third, this concept that Islam is a way of life. How do we get out of that or use it in a way that's individualistic rather than suffocating? So first, tribalisms. What do I mean by that? There's been so much written about that. It was a documentary on honor diaries I'd ask you to look at that Clarion Project did very well with, I think, nine Muslim women that talked about their struggles for against the honor-based culture that includes honor abuse, honor killings. But first, when we talk about tribalism, remember the reforms in Europe, the Enlightenment, the era of individualism, taught humanity from the existential thinkers, from Rousseau and Voltaire and others, taught them that individual thinking, the rights of the individual, if they are not protected, compromises society. That the, that the destruction of individual rights, that the people who have free speech to think that it would be worth defending to the death those views that you disagree with the most. That is what ended tribalism. Tribalism only saw its demise, and it still continues today. We see it with identity politics on the left now and other collectivist nationalisms. I'm a believe strongly in patriotism. Nationalism can be a problem. Now, obviously, nationalism is what brings us together in our national identity and legal uh, defense, first and foremost of our constitution. But collectivism in any of its forms can be problematic. Tribalism is a collectivism. Tribalism is a top-down system in which there's an elitism that tells individuals that your wishes, your needs, your thoughts are secondary to the thoughts of the elders, of the patriarchs, especially men over women, to the thoughts of the legal jurists of Islam over what you think individually. You don't have the right, you don't have the knowledge to read the Arabic of the Quran on your own. Other religions have said that. You know, the Catholic Church prevented people from reading the Latin for 300 years. So therefore, Muslim tribal leaders say that you must be a scholar to understand these things. Or they commit takfir, subtle takfir. You're not Muslim enough. You're not a scholar enough. It's a tribalism. And we see this in the families. We see this in the um, suffocation of kids thinking alone, thinking individualistically, deciding to do professions that their father didn't do, their grandfather didn't do, their uncles hadn't done. Women deciding not only to get an education, which they're often encouraged to do most of the time, in the, especially in third world countries. Remember Malala, 
She wanted to get an education. And thankfully, she received the Nobel Prize for being recognized for the courage she had in demanding that she be given the right to leave home and get an education at her young teenage years. And she was shot because of it. This is the fight against tribalism. The fight that identity, that what you do dishonors your tribe first before it dishonors you. The fact that you're accountable to the family's values, the family's sins, not your own. That all needs reform. Yes, it's tied and enmeshed in with religious reform. But the first step is to recognize that every individual has a right to make their own mistakes and their own successes. Every individual has a right to defy elitism, that you don't. One of our reform movement declarations says that we don't believe in birthrights, that just by virtue of your genetics, you have rights. No, as a human being, you have rights, but no single individual will have more rights over the other simply because of genetics. And we see this even in families that declare they are descendants of the Prophet Muhammad's lineage. It's very tribal, but my Sunni Muslim family in Syria raised me. My grandfather was a Sharia court judge, said there is no such a thing in the Islam we know. That's not Islamic. That we feel it was somehow possibly divinely inspired that the Prophet had no sons so that there would be no royalty or monarchical transmission of religious leadership. But still, Muslims fought bloodily from the day the Prophet died. Three of the first caliphs were assassinated. Tribalism has been plaguing our communities ever since the time of the Prophet. It's what Shia and Sunni sectarianism is all about. It's arguments over which sect has the right interpretation for traditions while they read the same Quran. Islam is not does not have a monopoly on sectarianism. It's obviously a big part of religion globally. But the other part of elitism and tribalism that needs to be looked at, we need to ask Arab communities here in America what they believe about tribal authoritarianism. And I think at the end of the day, what I think is most American is our meritocracy. While folks from the left and the right will criticize my presence now in 2017 on media, testifying to Congress, etc. I think if you look at where we started in 2004, in my first radio interview back then, I think that if I had been speaking irrational ideas with broken sentences that were irrationally put together with ideas that could be deconstructed by intellectuals, thinkers and think tanks and policymakers, etc. You don't think that would have happened with the brilliance of those who watch media, government, and policy across the country? So I think that, you know, and, and uh, listen, I, I'm still working hard to improve, but I, I do believe that success for everyone, my children, are uh, every American, for the most part, is based on meritocracy. Not necessarily all elections. Yes, we always wonder how the result of some elections happens. It's 
often twisted by power complexes that might exist. But at the end, I think there's no greater meritocracy on the planet than the American system. And I think one of the reasons is tribalism, collectivism is less of an issue here than anywhere else. It's definitely a problem. We are not immune from tribalism, but it is certainly much less of an issue because we have a meritocratic system. It's less about honor, less about genetics, and more about meritocracy. So do Muslim kids question their parents? When they're raised, are they told you must pray and they get hit with a stick if they don't pray? Or are they told these are the rules? We hope you understand them through reason. We hope you understand them through what you believe. And you can choose to pray or not. You can choose to wear the hijab or not, to dress conservatively or liberally. Or will they then be beaten and punished if they don't follow the rules, the strict suffocating rules of conservative orthodox parents? Can they question the parents on interpretations? Can they question the clergy? If they question the imam, how many Muslim women do you know that went to ask the imam about abusive husbands and were told, go back, try to make it work? That's what a good Muslim woman would do. It happens all too frequently. And nobody talks about it. Nobody questions it. And then they wonder why the honor killing happened, the honor abuse happens, and why women don't speak up. Whatever we see happening across families in America, it's accentuated because of the tribalism that has yet to be reformed. So, you know, listen, I think those who believe that theological reforms have to come first before these other things have it backwards. You can't get an environment in which the Quran and interpretations will be challenged until the very, very construct, the nervous system of tribalism is deconstructed and individuals are respected across the board. Male, female, age doesn't matter, race doesn't matter, family doesn't matter, all equal can ask questions and children and youth are given the respect to question authority. I can't tell you the number of times we've talked to Muslim youth only to have them come back a week later when they first agreed with us, later disagreeing because they are made to feel guilty by their parents. Every faith has this issue, the old guilt ridden faith complexes that many faiths have. But make no mistake, the tribalism of the Muslim and the one I know, the Arabic community, is severe and a major impediment, which then demands, marginalizes youth from having opinions because of the ulama or the scholars that, are you a scholar? Do you Have you studied at Al-Azhar? Oh, he has the Quran memorized. He knows what he's talking about. Which brings me to the next issue critical thinking. We talked about tribalism, now critical thinking. Until we Muslims can begin to empower youth to ask us questions that bother us, to ask us questions that we disagree with, to tell your kids that, you know, if you disagree with me, have the reason to back it up. Have the ethical arguments, one, two, three, as to why you believe what you did. I think it's fascinating. The beginning of the program today, I talked about how intellectually bizarre and unresponsive many of the remarks of the antagonists of my work are. 
and you know, this is, uh, you know, people say, oh, he's not qualified because he's a doctor. Well, actually, my medical education taught me that when you do differential diagnosis, when you look at symptoms and find that one disease, you prioritize what it could be, and then you rationally work down what it could possibly not be versus what it is. You look at solutions after the diagnosis, treatment after the diagnosis, and you continue to reevaluate whether your first diagnosis was, was correct as more data comes in. This is critical thinking. It's not black or white. There's gray zones. When we come back, we'll continue talking about the core areas of personal behavior that need reform. Tribalism, critical thinking, and is Islam only a black and white way of life? This is Zudi Jass. We'll be right back on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This for our last segment this week. And, you know, when we talk about reformation, what needs to change? What's the enlightenment that needs to happen? That enlightenment, I believe, includes three core areas. And we might go on to this in next week's segments. But I... I do believe that the core, the beginning of the subject is an abandonment of tribalism, a belief and a, a, a celebration of individuality, whatever that might be. A discussion of critical thinking and last questioning and understanding what it means when we say Islam is a way of life. So let's finish this discussion we talked about on critical thinking. If our kids, if our scholars, if our humanity cannot question even the existence of Islam or the existence of God or whether the Quran is authentic, if you can't allow your kids or any Muslims to ask those questions and doubt them, then their truths cannot be proven. A truth is only proven when you question it as a truth. The space has to be given, but also the space has to be given to believe it. If you don't give any space to believe it, then you're not allowing questioning. Then you aren't questioning authority, and you aren't transforming culture to begin to celebrate individuality. And if you look at right now, the hierarchy in an Islamic thought is all about memorization. If a Muslim has the Quran memorized, they become what's called the Hafiz, the Hafizin, who have the Qur'an memorized, are given that upper level of respect. And then if they learn some Sharia or we get a degree in Sharia, boom, they're basically on their way to becoming a mufti, a sheikh, a respected elder, which is what sheikh means. 
And yet that's all black and white stuff. It's great to memorize the Qur'an, but the time that these people take to memorize Qur'an, hundreds and hundreds of pages and chapters and verses, what if they spent that time reading liberal philosophers, understanding logic, philosophical questioning, looking at critical thinking, inventions, new thought? There's only so much time you can spend in your academic studies. Is it any wonder that yes, memorization is important. I, I believe we can't. We typically do not pray with an open book in our hand. We have to memorize passages to pray. I think that's good. The the reason memorization in Islam is important is because the authenticity of the Arabic script is important. So memorization solidifies that. I believe, but it should not replace critical thinking. It should not replace a discussion of whether the passage as we read it, as it was recited in 612, 618, 630 CE, what did it mean then and what does it mean now? Some passages might be for all time. Others might not be. And what does it mean to critically think? Why is it that in the Middle East they only have schools of medicine and engineering from Cornell, Georgetown, Harvard, etc., and yet... Schools of philosophy, of journalism, of liberal arts, of humanities aren't there. Where are those schools? It's because those would be schools that would threaten those regimes. Those would be schools that would teach the kids, the youth, the future, to question authority. How do you critically think? What is the process of critical thinking? What is the analytical process and the way to use that most important muscle we have? Obviously, it's not a muscle, but thinking is not something that, some, that comes easily. It needs to be developed. And unless you live in a home where at the age of five and seven, your parents encouraged you to question authority, respectfully, obviously, but to do it. Unless you live in a society where the schools encourage that. My father told me a story where at the age of 15, they were learning military education in Hafez Esed schools in Syria. And he had the temerity to ask why they didn't use American jeeps because the Russian jeeps seemed to break down in the snow and the cold weather. And he was then detained for two weeks, unable to go to class until his parents promised the school that he would not ask ridiculous questions about America and the West. That was in the 60s. I'm sorry, the late... Yeah, that was in the 60s, under Hoff, under the, the bath. Hafez took over in 70, but bottom line is the bath party. So critical thinking is part of a societal mindset. It's not just about critical thinking in religion. Critical thinking in society, poetry, music, comedy. Is there some of the smartest, most brilliant people in society are comedians. If the comedians are not given the freedom to question authority, is society growing? Will they develop the skills to reform? And last, what is reason? And we'll develop this in other podcasts, but are the arguments that are made in society based in reason 
or are they based in a memorized regurgitation of certain hadith, which are prophetic sayings or sirah or narratives, that are used then as evidence of a belief? So therefore, if you ask a question, the scholar's interpretation is based on narratives from this scholar, that scholar, rather than from a reason-based one. So at the end of the day, one of the, I think, the hallmarks of Western liberalism, which may have actually come from deists more than it came from necessarily Orthodox Christians, but I'll leave it to my fellow Christians and others to know that history about. I can tell you as a Muslim, our biggest problem right now is that we, when we have debates, individuals don't rely on their own conscience to determine what is right and wrong. They defer to finding out what the prophet would have done based on 12 different analytical reasons at the time, historical narratives. So what that does is it constricts them in looking at the past rather than into the future. So things like cloning, they try to find weird narratives that would apply rather than from a medical ethics. And this is something I specialize in is is biomedical ethical principles and decision making and conflict mediation, which I do all the time. And I can tell you when I talk to imams, they might know some of the theology, but since they're really not schooled in medical science and reasoning and simply not schooled in reasoning as a as an academic mindset and as a moral construct, the recommendations the families end up being nonsensical. So we need to educate our kids in reason, in how to make decisions. I remember when I left to go join the Navy, when my dad, one of the most significant recommendations he made to me was, you know, when you're on your own, you do what you think is right. You make that decision. Don't worry about what you think I would have told you, what your parents, what your mom would have told you, what you think God would believe based on scripture, but rather what you and your relationship with God think is right. And that was one of the best pieces of advice he gave me. So I chose not to drink, not just because the Quran tells me that, and we can go into that whole decision, but I, because I feel it makes sense to me rationally not to drink alcohol. Not just because I'm a Muslim, but because it's a rational argument for me personally. Last, Islam as a way of life. That's something you hear all the time. It's our way of life. You can't separate religion and politics state and religion because it's a way of life. Yes, God, we need a God-centered life. And you know, that sounds like many of the evangelical thoughtful ministers, the rabbis, others of every religion that teach to have a God-centered life. But that's so true. I don't think that's unique to Islam. If you say Islam is a way of life, Sharia is a way of life, as Qardawi, one of the world's leading Sunni scholars, would say, then you're stuck. You have to go with today's Sharia, which can often be draconian. 
But if you say Islam is a way of life, I would say yes, God-centered life, a relationship with God in which you choose morality. And I think this is at the core of what I want to end with today, is that too often, you know, de Tocqueville talks about the fact that American democracy works because the people, the founding fathers and the founding thinkers of our time in America were devout Christians, believers in God, feared God. They did not need military rule to be good to their neighbors. So I would tell you that if Islam as a way of life, if it's a constricting way of life in which Sharia, the rules of that are imposed in an authoritarian way by scholars, that's a horrific tyranny. But if it's a personal God-centered life of morality, of ethics, then that becomes a solution against political Islam, where individuals can, be, can choose to sin or not sin as long as it doesn't affect another person. Therefore, regardless of whether it's dress or drinking or whatever, if it's victimless crime, let them choose it themselves. Because if God centers your life and you want to be honest, then the moral, morality drives what you do. Ethics drives what you do. Rather than dishonesty, manipulation, and just trying to win an argument, trying to win a point in time, rather than trying to be humble, contrite, and honest. So these principles of character that are centered, I think, need to be a center of reform. And we as Muslims need to look, I mean, there's so many Muslims that will tell you that there, there are Islamists, clerics that preach and pray five times a day and have the Quran memorized, but then we'll go and lie. We'll go and cheat and steal. And even though they pray five times a day. So the most important part of Islam, yes, God should be a way of life in that relation, a personal relationship with God, but not imposing our life, not imposing our judgment upon anybody else. That needs deep reform. We need to look at these three things constantly if we're going to get anywhere in the first steps of reform. And I would argue that when we're reforming this, what is this? This is Islamism. We have to defeat that reform against it. It starts by defeating tribalism, elitism, clericalism, blind autocracy, loss of autonomy. It starts with fueling critical thinking, questioning authority, reason-based systems. And it starts with a God-centered life, not a Sharia, Islamic way that's imposed by clerics and your family and others, but a personal, moral, and ethical one of character, integrity, and God, which I think would be the only solution to all of what ails, but has to be the first steps. It's always great to be with you. Thanks for sharing another week with me on Reform This. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.